0: Today's program has been brought to you by Whole Foods Market, a dynamic leader in the quality food business, a mission-driven company that aims to set the standards of excellence for food retailers. For more
1: information, visit WholeFoodsMarket.com. I used to joke that I, I was kind of hoping someday I'd go out and somebody would say, you know, your magazine isn't really very good. Because it would just give me some perspective. I, it, everyone was so positive about it. And I said, they're, they're, you know, they're like Trekkies or something. They're, they're like, oh, sever. oh my God, you know, can I kiss the ground you walk on, you know.
0: HeritageRadioNetwork.org proudly presents Evolutionaries, Coleman Andrews. Coleman Andrews is regarded by many as one of the most important food writers in America. He helped change the way food is covered in media today. He founded Savour Magazine with Dorothy Kalins and others, worked as a contributing editor at Gourmet Magazine under Ruth Reichel, and started his own food and drink website, The Daily Meal. The landscape of food writing has changed dramatically since Coleman started his career. His editorial writing style and out-of-the-box approach was a serious precursor to the food media we know today. Coleman is also considered one of the world's foremost experts on Spanish cuisine, particularly that of the Catalonia region. Coleman grew up in Santa Monica, California, and it didn't take him long to find his passion for food and travel.
1: My parents were not adventurous eaters. My mother was from New England. My father was from the Midwest. They liked their meat well done. They didn't like garlic or onions or any member of that family. I wrote somewhere that I think my mother would rather put ground glass at baked potatoes than chives. She hated that flavor. I certainly didn't learn uh, much about the finer points of cuisine for my parents. However, they were great restaurant goers. They went out all the time to all the best restaurants in Los Angeles where I grew up. And so I I always say that I really came to food not through the kitchen, either the professional kitchen or my my mother's kitchen, but through sitting in restaurants and having people bring me food and watching what went on around me and and how that went together. As far as travel, my mother was not a traveler. My father, uh, when he was about 50, as his business was changing he was a screenwriter and the studio system was was changing completely and he was having a harder time making ends meet he got the opportunity to start traveling in asia and over the next 20 years or so traveled widely in pakistan india iran egypt he made a a film in egypt in fact and uh I used to suspect he was working on the side for the CIA because he went to all these interesting places. So he traveled a tremendous amount. And I just, when I was uh, probably 20 or so, my girlfriend at the time and I, she was English, and uh, we decided to go to Europe for the summer. That was the beginning of me traveling a lot. At one point, I decided it might be fun to review restaurants. uh, I could get paid at least a little tiny bit or or get meals paid for at least, and so I invented a persona which was mr. Food, um, and I started writing reviews for an underground newspaper in l a and I just wanted to have fun with it, so Mr. Food was kind of a character that uh, made bad food puns and pretended to have an estate in France and to uh, be a, it was a made, up, a made up character, but the assessments of restaurants were real. I'd been freelance writing in LA just as a way to make money to supplement student loans at first, and then when I got out of college trying to make a living at it, wasn't easy. I then got offered a job at a magazine called Coast, which was a it started as an FM radio guide and kind of an arts magazine, and they just kind of gave it to me and let me do what I wanted to, which I did for about three years. And then I quit because I wanted to get back to doing more writing. As I was quitting, one of the contributors to Coast said you should write some stuff for this magazine called Apartment Life in New York and Apartment Life was kind of an early uh, version of something like Real Simple or something like that I used to joke that it was a magazine that told you how to make a coffee table out of thread spools you know it was that kind of thing but they hired me to write some pieces so I started writing about wine and and food and various kinds of of, uh, stories for them and then that magazine morphed into Metropolitan Home So I continued writing for them and became a contributing editor and so forth. So Meredith, which published Metropolitan Home, uh, decided to close the magazine down. I I guess it had not been as profitable as they'd hoped. In fact, it didn't get closed down. It got bought by uh, Hachette. But at that point, Dorothy left. I was back freelancing, and she met some people who were starting a new magazine company, and they hired her, and she hired me. So we ended up, along with Christopher Hersheimer who was a wonderful photographer, and Michael Grossman, who was a designer, uh, we ended up inventing Severa. In
0: 1994, Coleman Andrews founded Savoir Magazine with Dorothy Kalins, Michael Grossman, and Christopher Hersheimer. The magazine has since been awarded three American Society of Magazine Editors Awards and 15 James Beard Journalism Awards.
1: We talked about the fact that obviously we were familiar with all of the food magazines, Gourmet, Bon Appetit, Food and Wine, and so on, but they didn't have much meaning for any of us. We didn't really read them. They didn't give us what we wanted to read about. They didn't satisfy our hunger for the kind of information we wanted. So we thought, all right, let's rethink this from the beginning. What kinds of stories would we like to read? We decided that what was important to us really was tradition, was context, was context, was was the way in which food really touches just about every part of life. You know, it's a reflection of people's ethnic background, their religion in many cases, the climate they live in, their economic status. Uh, you know, it, it, it just affects and is affected by everything about life, really. So we thought, let's let's do a magazine that, that acknowledges that and deals with that. At one point we said, you know, we might be doing too many articles about Chefs' grandmas, and not enough about the chefs themselves. But so we occasionally we did things about chefs, but but only people that really seemed to be connected in various important ways. That seemed to be representative of some larger truth or larger importance in the in the world of food. We did a lot about the real, the authenticity, uh, as far as we could. It's a tricky term to define, but we decided if we were going to write about paella or chili con carne or something like that, we weren't going to give you the variations. You know, We weren't interested in the Tex-Mex cassoulet or the uh, Asian fusion cassoulet. We wanted to try to get back to the original cassoulet and really tell people why this dish developed, how it developed, why it had this ingredient and not that ingredient, and then give as close a recipe as we could to recreate that food. We grew very quickly uh, from about 100,000 circulation to around 375, which is more or less where we stayed. And the reaction was really intense and favorable, especially among the food and drink community. I honestly believe we helped improve the quality of food journalism overall uh, in, in the country. I think what we did was give other magazines permission to do things that they maybe didn't know they could do. So I think the fact that our photographs were not styled in the traditional way or the fact that we would write long articles about people that you'd never heard of as opposed to a celebrity chef or something. I think other publications said, oh, gee, I guess they can do that. Why don't we do that too, occasionally? So they started doing that. I, the photographic style really, really is is noticeable. If you look at an issue of Gourmet or Bon Appetit uh, from around the time we launched and then look at it two or three years later and it's really noticeable.
0: Coleman Andrews enjoyed a very successful run as editor in chief of Savoir from 2001 to 2006, and then resigned, paving the way for his next move, which would be restaurant columnist at Gourmet magazine. At the time, Coleman's close friend Ruth Reichl was editor in chief of Gourmet, which made the move a natural fit.
1: So I had been at Savoir from the time we founded it for a dozen years, and. It had gone through many changes, most significantly a change of ownership. It was bought by someone that I didn't get along with at all, uh, that I did not think was smart about the business, the business of Sever. He's smart about other businesses, other aspects of the business. And I didn't trust him. I didn't want to work with him. I stuck it out for quite a while. And then what I, I always said, well, I you know I, I don't like him, but at least he doesn't touch editorial and then he started touching editorial, and I said, yeah, "I don't need this." And and uh, his wife was, uh, I guess, a self styled foodie, quote unquote, and she wanted to get involved, and she'd get involved, and she she'd edit stuff under the sever name, uh, like separate publications, and and it would just be such a low level. And I said, you know, I've spent years and years uh, refining what I know and my craft and my knowledge. And I don't want my name associated with something that is on this level. So I resigned, moved right over into I talked to Ruth about it. And she said, well, I can't bring you on as a staff member, but I'll give you a, a writing contract. Uh, for." And it was a very, very generous writing contract. And it really netted me almost as much as uh, as I'd made as an editor at Sever. And that was fine until the magazine folded, probably because Ruth was giving out generous writing contracts. I don't know. Well, the, the idea of writing about food uh, was was kind of an outlier profession, I think, when I when I started it in the... In the 70s, there weren't a lot of food writers. There were the people, obviously, working for the food magazines. There were writers of books like Waverly Root and people like that who turned out quite wonderful books, but there weren't a lot of them, M.F.K. Fisher and so forth. Uh, I I haven't seen figures, but I guarantee you the number of cookbooks and books on food that are published today, many, many times what used to be published. So in, in a way, it was much more of an open field. People that want to get started in food writing today have an advantage and a really big disadvantage. And the advantage is it used to be that you needed clips. If you wanted to get a magazine job, you had to show people things you'd already published. And generally, the way to do that was you 'd find some local throwaway newspaper or magazine and or maybe your college paper or something, and you 'd write things for them and you know you 'd build up enough clips to show to a real magazine and you might get a job well today, with you know, about half an hour, anyone can can launch a blog and can write thousands and thousands of words about food and those are your clips so that 's very easy. The tricky part comes in when you try to turn that into making a living. And I always think of the number of, of people who have blogs who end up getting lucrative book contracts, or even in one case that I know of, a, you know, movie contract. Julie Julia. That's kind of like comparing, you know, the kids that play backlot basketball to the guys that make it to the NBA. I mean, it's it's a tiny, tiny, tiny fraction. And if you're trying to make a living today, as magazines disappear, newspapers disappear. And the online space, which I'm very much involved with now, gets bigger and bigger. You can't make money writing online about food. Uh, if you have your own blog, you know, you can make a little bit of money. Uh, if you're popular and you have enough unique visitors, you can get some advertising. But you're not going to make very much money. And the number of food websites that actually pay what magazines used to pay is is uh, minute. Restaurants have changed tremendously since we started doing this many years ago. Maybe the biggest shift has been that restaurants were never about chefs. They were about the restaurateurs. The personality, the style, the kind of food was dictated by the people that owned the restaurants. You didn't know any chef's name. I mean, nobody could name a chef at their favorite restaurant unless they'd hired the guy to come and cater a party for them, maybe. There'd be no reason for you to know the chef. The uh, tremendous change uh, where chefs have become the central figures and they've become the stars and blah, 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 the rock stars or whatever you want to say. That's a really, really significant change. The problem with it is that you don't have the consistency in restaurants that you used to have. When you had the person that owns the restaurant, and I, I know there are chef owners, but even chef owners in many, many cases are not majority owners. And they tend to leave. So you go to a restaurant you think it's really good. Let's say it has a famous name attached. Well, it turns out they didn't really have a big piece. And six months later, they're doing something else. And they had a fight with their partner. And maybe the sous chef can take over and maybe he can't. Or you have a situation where you have a newly minted star chef who has probably very little experience except on TV. Who in some cases may be very good and know how to handle it. The situation, in some cases, not. So you don't have the consistency at all. When when you had, I mean, when I was growing up, the famous restaurants in L.A. were Chasons run by Maude and Dave Chason and Romanoff's run by Mike Romanoff and places like that. And and those people were always there. And you knew that whatever they wanted, they'd get. And, you know, the chef didn't have anywhere near the creativity or the chance to express his or her own ideas But for the diner, it was a lot more consistent. It was dependable. Now, do people want that today? Maybe not. I think they do, at least a lot of times. I think there's times when you just want to go someplace and have something that you know is going to be the same. You had it last time, you know, three weeks ago or three months ago, and you want it again. And, you know, I mean, people tend to come back to places for things that they like. And so it's nice when they're still there, which which they may not be. The other great change... And I think it's impossible to underestimate the importance of Chez Panisse in the American food landscape, and also to an extent of Spago. to California restaurants, and I am a Californian, but most of the new American restaurants, young American restaurants, contemporary American restaurants in this country, if not all of them, would not exist if Chez Panisse or someone like them hadn't done what they did. And the most radical thing that that restaurant did was say we're going to write a menu based on what's available, what's in season, what we can get from the suppliers, what's at its peak. Restaurants simply did not do that. The menus were printed up. It might occasionally be out of something, but generally if they had escargot, you'd get escargot, whether they were fresh or frozen or canned. You know, if they had filet of sole, same thing. It could be frozen. It could have been in a block of ice for three months. But it was Filet of sole, and you expected it. You know, and the idea that you'd say, well, we don't have Filet of sole, but we've got bluefish or we've got petrale in California or something like that, a lesser fish, but hey, it just came out of the water you know, uh, eight hours ago. I mean, and that's like, absolutely revolutionary. I'm now the editorial director of the TheDailyMeal.com, which launched uh, just about three years ago. And we use uh, a tremendous number of, of freelance writers. Uh, we have a solid editorial staff that, that writes a lot of the uh, content. But we use many, many freelancers. And we're able to pay very little and, and very seldom because the, the volume of content is, is so great. So what do we offer instead? Well, people used to want to be writers. Now a lot of writers want to be brands. They want to have a name. They want to have something they can do something else with. Uh, We have upwards of 8 million monthly unique visitors now. That means an awful lot of eyeballs. If you write for us, an awful lot of people see you. So if it's it's a value to you to become a well-known name, in the field, we, off, we offer tremendous value. Uh, you know, I, I wish we could pay huge amounts of money to people uh, that would allow people to make a living writing for us, but we can't unless they're staffers. Blogs are funny because they're, they're unedited. They're, they're just people sitting in their, in their room or their office or whatever writing what they want to write about. When I was at Severe, we spent a tremendous amount of time fact-checking, copy-editing, arguing about grammar, refining and honing every story. And so this is the medium where none of that gets done. But yet, and there's certainly exceptions, there's a tremendous amount of really good stuff coming out of food blogs. And it has a kind of energy and immediacy and honesty that most magazine articles don't have. So I'm I'm always surprised at, at how good... Many, with exceptions, but many food blogs are. And I, I, that was a great revelation to me. It's like when people uh, can talk to you naturally and they're, they're kind of funny and they're telling a story. And then you say, oh, wait, I'm going to set up a camera and do this on, on video. And they kind of freeze up and they I kind of think it's like that. The very fact that nobody, no editor is looking over their shoulder lets them just be themselves. And often it really works well. you know there there's so much out there now there's so so many things you can read and and watch and and uh and experience uh, around food and drink uh it's it's hard to know sometimes uh, what's real and what isn't and and you know to cut through the noise uh, there's no one piece of advice on how to do that really except you know way deep down i think you you can you can tell when you look at something when you read something when you you hear somebody talk or or uh, read what somebody says does it ring true to you? I mean, I, I think a mistake people make sometimes is putting food off in its own world. And I, I, I teach when I teach food writing classes. Sometimes I start off by saying, "Listen, the bad news is there's no such thing as food writing. There's good writing, and it doesn't matter whether you're writing about politics or sports or or food or anything else. Food is the subject matter. It's not a kind of writing. And I think that's that's true of of uh, really anything, any aspect of of the food world. It's part of real life. It's not." something separate because it happens to be about food and if, if you start listening to people or watching people who seem too glib and who seem to have no frame of reference beyond what's on the plate in front of them or beyond what they're you know the place they own or or beyond the contest that they're uh, competing in on tv if that's their only frame of reference I, I, i'd look at them i'm not saying they're they're not real but i'd i'd look at them skeptically food is connected with virtually every aspect of life uh and people that don't seem to recognize that, who seem to think all they know about food is, uh, oh, I, I've got these ingredients in the box and I have to make something in, in 30 minutes uh, that, that will please some judges, uh, if that's their approach to food and that's all that, that they can do, they're probably not worth spending a lot of time with. I mean, I don't know if, if I've had uh, a significant impact on the, on the world of food of food or food journalism. I think the things that I'm proudest of are having co-founded this magazine, Sever, that really did change uh, a lot of things. I wrote the first major book in English on Catalan cuisine, which now has become fairly well-known. I wrote a book on Irish cooking, a huge book called The Country Cooking of Ireland, which um, I'm very proud of, and I think it goes a long way to uh, counteracting a lot of the common conceptions of Irish food as being uh, nothing but potatoes and really terrible, uh, which is not at all the case. But I, I don't know, in the, in the larger scheme of things, I hope I've taught people things and have brought them pleasure, or directed them toward places that will bring them pleasure. I think also the, um, the daily meal is, is something that, you know, it's, it's so different from what I did at Sever, completely different. But there's something very satisfying about being able to reach a huge, huge audience and, and uh, along the way amuse them and, and, uh, and, and educate them and you know, tell them a few things about food and drink.
0: This program was produced by Aaron Fairbanks and Jack Inslee with additional research by Sari Kamen for HeritageRadioNetwork.org. In order of appearance, the songs used are Polka Dub by Eben Hashi, Walking Like a Cowboy by Tax Star, all Day, All Night by the California Honeydrops. Raindance by Feral. Ventla Tiantico by Ventla. Crippy Fnuck by Space Disease. Let's Not by Shadowbox. Relax, It's Just the End of the World by Taxstar. And once again, Polka Dub by Evan Hashi. Heritage Radio Network is a member-supported nonprofit organization broadcasting over 30 live shows a week. To learn more and donate, visit our website or connect with us on iTunes, Stitcher, Facebook, Twitter, Tumblr, and Instagram for more. Thanks for listening.